Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God is a vast subject. It will cover almost every kind of topic that would be of interest to man or woman. And today we're going to talk about men a lot. We're going to talk about husband. But we're going to talk about a lot of things that people are just not used to thinking about in ways at least that they're not used to thinking about them. And the reason that it's it's going to be a challenge to some people is because of a thing that we've been popularizing here is the term cognitive dissonance. We actually have something we call TCD, is terminal cognitive dissonance. That means that you have this cognitive dissonance that you just can't overcome. It's terminal. You're going to be one of those zombies, those dead people that uh, Jesus talked about when he said, let the dead bury the dead. Because they just don't get it. They just don't, they will not receive eyes to see or ears to hear. It takes a person willing to do some serious soul searching, looking retrospectively and introspectively upon yourself. And why you are what you are. Now, we're not trying to beat you up. We're not trying to humiliate people. We're not trying to make people suffer. We're trying to awaken people patiently and calmly. And sometimes we have to do a little shouting to get people to understand how important this is. But um, everything is tied up in, in mankind in the relationship of man and woman. And men and women have built into them opposing forces that will strengthen them. There's something called isometrics that is used in exercise where you pit one of your muscles against another muscle. And it strengthens the muscle except for the fact that there's, there's a level that you can reach in pitting one muscle against another muscle because this muscle is only so strong. You pit against that muscle, it's only so strong. You have to create an external force to strengthen one muscle more than the other so that isometrics will continue to increase the muscle power of both uh, opposing muscles. And this is kind of the way it is with husband and wife. Husband and wife are two distinct muscles. They do different things. They are very similar. They're both muscles. They're both connected to the same arm, but in different ways. And when you pit one against the other, they strengthen one another. They don't become the other muscle. They just both become stronger by pitting themselves against each other. One independent muscle uh, isometrics, one muscle is always stronger in one sense, but the other one is a part of the operation. Without one, you know, you can only bend your arm one way. You can't bend it back. And so there's this... Uh, Corollel between man and woman that they're not the same they come from different points of view they are both muscles but they do something different and if they interact properly they strengthen one another when you bring in an outside force something external from the husband and wife uh, this creates an additional 
stress upon one muscle or the other so that that muscle, when again introduced into the process of isometrics, they strengthen more because this outside force has put stress on one muscle, strengthened it, and then now it that one brings that stress and strengthening to the original isometric muscle and you improve the muscle tone of both by that interaction. So, I don't know, that's an analogy maybe a little bit beyond some people to understand, but the point is is that what would Shakespeare say something about uh, in uh, Much Ado About Nothing uh, to test what manner of metal a man is made out of? And that's that's one of the positions of a woman to test the man, to strengthen the man. It's not right that man be alone. That a woman will test and and test the uh, to see what metal that man is made out of by her nature. She doesn't even have to try. It's just by her nature she will do that. And most men would be very surprised as to where one of the major tests in the structure of that personality we call woman is upon a man. And we'll get to that eventually, but we're not going to start with that. We're going to start with Genesis 3.16 where it says, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrows and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now, that's a terribly misunderstood quote in the Bible. It's supposed to be because the woman had been deceived and, and deceived her husband, and they fell in the sin. And these are talking about personality characteristics that are found in every man and every woman. And because they chose to go a certain way, certain things are going to follow. It's like if you choose to have a leader who can exercise authority one over the other and rule over you to fight your battles for you, to make things right, to guarantee justice, to guarantee security, certain things will follow. And Samuel lists them out that he will end up taking, 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 taking. Then he will rule over you and take your sons and daughters and all this kind of stuff. He'll make his instruments of war. He'll bankrupt you. And there'll come a day of calamity where you'll cry out and God will not hear you. Now, that that's the end result of taking these other steps. It's built into the system. So, if you decide to decide for yourself what is good and evil and not listen and walk with the Lord, certain things are going to happen. Difficulties are going to take place. And, and God is not cursing you. He's explaining to you that this is the curse of going down that road. He's not condemning you. And so the desire for a husband is what the woman shall have. But he's not. she's not going to get that. She's going to get a man who wants to rule over her. This is not carte blanche license for a man to rule over a woman. It is explaining how it's going to work. He's not going to be your husband. You're going to long for that. But instead, you're going to get a ruler. A dictator. And we could go into all the Hebrew words that are used there. And it's very interesting. There's lots of different words that are uh, translated ruler. And, and one of them is Shimrash. And the other one is Shimreshresh. That's two reshes. Different kind of ruler. One is a Shimrash ruler. And the other one is a Shimreshresh ruler. Just to kind of give you... Uh, 
uh, a rough idea, the Shemrash ruler speaks to you and shows you the way, like Moses was supposed to do. But the Shemrash ruler uses his staff and makes you do it. And that's not that's an across-the-board explanation, but that gives you kind of a little peek into these letters and words. The word woman in Genesis 3.16 is actually from the word Eleph Shem uh, Hey. Three letters, Eleph Shem Hey. And those of you who are familiar with a lot of things that we talk about when we talk about the Hebrew language, uh, this this word, sometimes pronounced Ish-sha, uh, and plural, it's um, actually a Nun Shem Yad Mem. Um, it's... Uh, No. Anyway, the um, uh, the point of this word Elif Shem Hey being woman, and it's it's translated wife actually 425 times in the Bible, and translated woman about 323 times. So it's actually translated wife more often than it's translated woman. Uh, but it's a it's a word that uh, has its meaning expressed in the letters themselves. And this is one of these phenomenons of the Hebrew language is that it appears that all the letters had meanings and they actually put the letters together in order to construct an idea, which we call a word. It's represented by a word. Now, that's not the way it works in uh, English and many other languages, even, uh, Greek, even though we find evidence that in the Greek language there are, are are words that seem to have Hebrew origin based on the earlier letters. But the original letters in the Hebrew actually constructed words based on the meanings of the letters. And we'll show you some of that today. We've shown you that in the book Thy Kingdom Comes and, and other books that we're writing to show you how this will help you understand the Old Testament. Because there's a reason why those letters are in that word because that's how the word was constructed most language is constructed because people are talking and they create sounds and these sounds change over a period of time and therefore the spelling changed over a period of time and at the end of all this you've got uh, a language that has no meaning connected whatsoever to the original letters because they were just sounds but that's not the way it was in Hebrew. So anyway, going back to these words like uh, Elif Yad uh, or Shem. Uh, no, that's right. Elif Yad Shem, another word, which we see translated in that Genesis 3.16 into the word husband. Uh, here it's it's actually contracted from another word, which is Elif Nun uh, Vav Shem. And... Uh, which is translated man some 520 times, and a certain, meaning like a certain man, 10 times, and husband only three times. That the uh, There's another word that's translated husband uh, about 69 times, and it's normally translated men about 1,000 times. But that, it's actually two different words that are... Uh, uh, translated into these different uh, words like Elif, Yad, Shem is 
1,000 times translated into man, but 69 times translated into husband. So, this connection of translating the same word into man or husband is because of the fact that it is a natural state for a man to be a husband. But a husband is not the same as a ruler. That's a different word and a different idea. And if we go down to some of these uh, words, like, uh, let's see if we can take uh, uh, the word uh, elif shim hey, which is that isha word, which we see uh, translated into woman. We look at the the letter Elif, and it means uh, father son begin. It's a paradox of God and man. The uh, and it also has the meaning of an ox or a bull or a strength or uh, or a leader or someone who is first. And is actually composed of two Hebrew letters, a Yad and an Elif. Or no, Yad and uh, I'm going to make it the Elif is composed of a Yad and a Vav. I'm going to get you even more confused. But anyway, it has a, a yad on one side and yad on the other, and this vav in between. And vav is always a connecting word, so it's connecting two yads. One of them is higher than the other, so one of them is God and one of them is man. And now you have a picture of Michelangelo's picture of God reaching out to touch man's finger. That's an aleph. Yad on one side, man on the other, and this connection between. It's, it's God and man connected, the aleph. As it was in the beginning. We walked with God. Uh, in this word. Uh, we also have a Shem. And that Shem means kind of an eternal flame. Bound uh, to a coal of divine essence. And of course that's what the, uh, the Vav normally does. Is it connects two things. But here it's talking about connecting the Eleph. This relationship of God and man with a uh, third thing, which is the letter hey. And the letter hey is always an emphasis word. And actually, I just noticed in my notes I've got this wrong. But uh, that hey is uh, a word that um, uh, is usually, like I say, an emphasis word. It, it expands upon that the fullness of that relationship of God and man. And that's that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with uh, this word of woman being this kind of completion of this original two letters that has to do with men, but they change the third and it, and it becomes something else. So anyway, I'm fixing my notes as we go along here because I I didn't realize I had gotten that. I put the wrong letter in there, <laughs> but anyway, it's Elishim Hey. Uh, so the most common word for husband and for man is this other word Elif Nun Vav Shem. So they both start with this Elif, but they have some other letters in it because Elif is this relationship of God and man connected. But the second letter is this Nun, which means heir to the throne. In Aramaic, it actually, the nun is also composed of like two letters or two ideas, which is a, uh, a mem and a nun. And it's moving 
what it is is like a fish moving in the water. It's man in his natural element. And the Vav, again, is connecting that original Elif, uh, uh, representing man, to this position of dominion connected to this Shin, which is this eternal flame, this coal uh, or divine essence. And this is how they get the word man and husband, by connecting these letters. And as if you start laying these out and looking at these letters and word after word after word, and I've actually got several places in uh, that I can show you where there's a particular um, word like Ami, which is in Hosea 2.5. You see this word where it says, uh, actually in one, the first verse, it says, Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sister, Ruhamah. And so you think there's these there's a brother named Ami and there's a sister named Ruhamah. Problem is is that the word there is actually just the word Ami that is translated people one thousand eight hundred and thirty six times and one time in Hosea two one it's translated Ami. So why is it translated you know almost two thousand times it's translated people? But one time it's not translated, but they just put the word Ami. And they do the same thing with Ruhamah. Uh, because Ruhamah is it's normally a, a word that uh, means compassion or uh, almost a piteous love or uh, you know, a love that comes from uh, feeling this compassionate mercy on somebody. And that, but they don't translate it. They they make it a name of somebody. And it's and if you read it in context, it's Hosea 2.2. 2, it goes on to plead with your mother. Plead, uh, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Verse 3. Let... I, uh, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the days that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Sounds like a bad thing. He's saying something about plead with her mother because she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. But who is, who is he talking to? Ami and Ruhama? No, he's talking to the people. And he's talking to their compassion. Why? Because they set up a system based upon that which we see set up at the time of Jesus Christ, the system that was set up in Ur, the system that was set up in Babylon, the system that uh, terror was setting up in Haran, which was a system of covetousness, where the citizenry, the people of a nation, because the word is also translated nation about 17 times, this uh, army were setting up a system whereby they coveted their neighbor's goods and they set up a ruler who could take and take and take and take so that they could be benefited. And Jesus said, you have seen the Gentiles, their government, the government, the rulers of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. 
This is such a common theme throughout the Bible. And he becomes their husband. This ruler. He becomes their father. Their caregiver. And they become his servants. His merchandise. His human resources. Now that comes about because of a characteristic in man himself. To rule over others. And while a man is to be this Shemresh ruler of his family, he is not to be the Shemresh Resh ruler of his family. And a woman is given this weaker stature because it is tempting man by her nature to rule over her, to intimidate her, to make her do what he wants her to do, to exercise his will upon her instead of walking with God. He begins to become her God, her director, instead of leading her as his sister to God. He wants to become her God. He wants to become her ruler. And this is one of the great temptations. And and we'll see when we go into the New Testament how this is very common. This is one of the great temptations to exercise authority instead of exercise the wisdom of God. To rule Become this tyrant. And, you know, I've said in... We have a couple programs on man and woman. And I'm sure I can't ever remember what I say in these things. But uh, I don't have to remember it. Because I'm saying the same thing over and over again. It's the same principle. Because it's written in me already. But this idea of woman... uh, Being given to man so he has somebody to boss around is not what it is. It's it's so that he will learn not to boss somebody around, but to be like God and rule with love and wisdom and righteousness. That he will just stand in righteousness and this will become... the Righteousness will rule the woman's heart. Not an authoritarian dictator. So, anyway, we... Uh, I was going to tell you also, if we look at that word... Um, Ami, you know, it's just two letters. It's an A-N and a Mem. But if you add a Lamad to that, A-N, Mem, Lamad, the word that is people becomes toil, labor, workmen. Because you added a Lamad to a word that normally means over a thousand times, it means people. Almost two thousand times it's translated people. You know, sometimes it's translated nation, like I say, 17 times, and and uh, folk twice. And it's got a couple other translations, but it's basically always people. But if you add a Lamad to it, it becomes this laborer. If you don't add a Lamad, but you add uh, another letter, uh, Semach, which is uh, the eternal circle. It uh, has to do with cycling over and over again. Uh, then it becomes the word load or laid or born or burden. So the same word, just by adding one letter, it could mean uh, trouble or labor or workman, but by adding a different letter, it becomes the load itself, the the burden. Okay, and now if you add a, a, a different letter, like a kuf, 
instead of a lamad, then it becomes a word that means deep or profound as a verb. But if you're using it as a noun, it means a valley or a lowland. If you're using it as an adjective, it means something in depth or deeper or strange. So this is how they change the meaning of words by simply changing a letter. And we're going to see how important that is in the days to come. But I'm just giving you kind of a peek at it. But we're going to get into this topic of husband when we come back. The Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Yeah, we're talking about this idea of husband. And we're going to get into a lot of New Testament references. I, I, there's actually several Old Testament references that we can talk about also. One of the things I want you to understand is that this idea of husband and, and what it really means having to do with this natural relationship of God and man and, and this divine um, spark and coal that lives in us, this relationship with God, that we are not husbands unless we have the character of God in us. We're not husbands because somebody made a paper and said, you're her husband, you take this woman for your husband and for your uh, for your wife and 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 those terminologies that we see in legal documents uh that's not what makes you a husband not in the sense that we see in the hebrew language what makes you a husband is that you are like god in that you are a giver of life you are a promotion of fruit in your wife which doesn't mean just children. It means actually you make your wife fruitful in the ways of the Spirit. Because you're ruling in your household like God rules. Like Moses was supposed to rule. Like Christ ruled. And we'll see this reference. And there again, there's this cognitive dissonance that we have these preconceived notions that keeps us from understanding exactly what that means. Uh, we just don't quite grasp what that means when we're talking about this idea of husband. And, you know, we we started talking about this cognitive dissonance. And I, I noticed in the news again today, there's more talk about school violence and, and gun control and things like that. There's probably going to be a lot of that as time goes on. And there's always these levels and levels that they want to take that to. And I was talking to somebody from Brazil yesterday morning. And uh, he was amazed at the fact that all of our cars out in the driveway and in town, like uh, in Paisley, the town, people have their keys in their car. They're just sitting in the car and the car's unlocked. And they, he was saying, well, if you're in Brazil and he lives in a small town, he doesn't live in Rio or something, uh, not a real small town, uh, thousands, I think he said 5,000 people live in this town. He says that anywhere in Brazil, if you leave the keys in the car, it will be stolen. Somebody will take it. And so I asked him, because this was a topic that was in the news, and I said, so what do you guys do about gun control? Can you own a gun in uh, Brazil? And he says, well, yeah, you can own a gun, but you have to do psychological testing and and all this kind of stuff. So you can get it, but it's not easy. So he says, most people don't have guns. It's very hard to get them. And uh, I says, well, that's why you can't leave your keys in your car. 
<laughs> there you go. <laughs> I guess because you're unarmed. You, you can't protect your property. You can't even protect your own life. Uh, so therefore, you're subject. You're in danger. And actually, I looked up the statistics uh, just coincidentally uh, about a week or so before about the number of stabbings in Brazil. The stabbings are unbelievably. Lots of people killed with knives. And the statistically, you know, some of these statistics about all the people who are killed with guns in America, they, they are counting when a policeman kills somebody too. That's gun death. Even if a policeman shoots him, it counted as a gun death. <laughs> so <laughs> we have this tendency, oh, these are all these criminals out there murdering people. No, these are gun deaths. And even there, most of those gun deaths are like gangbangers shooting each other. It's not people, you know, like in, in the community I live in, everybody is armed to the teeth. I mean, they don't carry guns around all the time. Uh, some do. Some have guns in their pockets at church. But um, they, everybody, almost everybody in the community has a load of guns, and they're often loaded in the house. And it's very common out here to go in the house and see a loaded gun. It's just everybody has got them. We live a long ways. I mean, the nearest police station is 75 miles away. And the last burglary we had, they wouldn't even, you know, nearby to my house. Um, and end up, it, the burglar was the son of a reserve deputy. But um, uh, they wouldn't even come out and investigate. It was too far. <laughs> the only crime we had, they wouldn't come out. But uh, so people have become pretty independent about, you know, you don't dial 911, you dial your neighbor. And uh, that's just kind of the attitude because we're out here. And that's the way it, well, it used to be everywhere in America. But we can leave our keys in the car. We haven't had an armed robbery in this valley since 1957 and the guys never made it out of the valley. They got stopped by men with guns. Because it's your responsibility to be the hue and cry of your society. You, you are to tend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You are to come to your neighbor's aid as part of loving your neighbor. And if you, if you don't have a gun, you can't come to his aid unless you want to just run out and get shot by uh, somebody who has a gun. And so if you want to know where most of the gun violence is, it is where they have disarmed the people because all the criminals have guns. You know, places like... Uh, and it gets worse and worse. Places like Washington, D.C. and places like Chicago. This is where that's taking place. Out here, we don't have murders out here. Uh, very seldom. Very seldom. I mean, uh, it just doesn't happen. Because everybody's armed. Now, it can happen. We actually had a gun death where somebody from out of town was going through a barbed wire fence to go hunting ducks and his shotgun fell over and shot him, and he bled to death. But he evidently didn't know how to use guns very well, and that happens. And there was a drunk guy once who shot his own son because they were doing uh, fast draws, supposedly with empty guns, in the house while they were both drunk, and the gun wasn't empty. But that's not... Because that, that's not the gun. I saw the guy a couple of minutes after it happened. He was driving down the road just as drunk with a car. And uh, 
that's that's what happens uh, when people are foolish and irresponsible. And it could happen, I mean, nothing more dangerous than a car. So, but there's a cognitive dissonance in this country that think, oh, let's create gun-free zones around our children, which is where all these mass murders take place is in the gun-free zones. And they keep doing it. And they say, shouldn't we get rid of all the guns? Even if it just saves one life, isn't it worth it? No. Because it's killing people while you're saving one life. Maybe somewhere way down the road. You already know it's a failed system. Gun-free zones don't work. Gun-free zones are stupid. Gun-free zones kill people. They put people at risk. The most innocent people at risk. And yet they keep doing it. They're killing people. They're responsible for the deaths of those children. Because they, it's like if you sent somebody out in a rowboat on a lake where the wind blows and you didn't let the children, we're going to have a life vest safe zone. Life vest, somebody drowned with a life vest on because they got it on backwards once and they drowned. So we're not going to let people wear life vests anymore. We're going to send them out in a rowboat on a windy lake without any life vests. That would be considered a crime. But you will send your children to a school that is a gun-free zone with nobody there capable of protecting your children. Nobody. Israel had the problem and they solved it. But there's a cognitive dissonance. This is what we're really discussing here. Is they cannot see the obvious reality there. They go with this blind mindset. But if we get rid of all the guns, like it's going to happen, it's not going to happen. You're not going to get rid of all the guns. A lot of those gun deaths are policemen shooting people. Now, if only the policemen have guns, you say, oh, well, the policemen are good, aren't they? Well, they were good in Germany. And they rounded people up and killed them. And policemen change. And you can hire different kinds of policemen. The reason you have guns is for the protection of your society. And anybody who wants to take that away wants to take away the protection of your society. The problem is you're already doing it. You're already turning the responsibility of protecting your society over to men who exercise authority one over the other. And Christ said you are not to do that. And now you want to do it more. You cannot be a gun control advocate and a Christian. They don't mix. Those are two cognitively different ideas. I'm going to tend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, and mercy, and faith, but I'm going to give the responsibility of tending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith to somebody else. You can't do both. You either tend to them yourself, or you give the responsibility to somebody else. And Christ said you were to tend to it. You were not to give that responsibility to somebody else. So you can't say, I'm going to follow Christ, but I'm not going to do what he says. Those are cognitively dissident ideas. They, they conflict with each other. Now, understanding that, let's go on to looking at this concept of husband. Because there is a huge cognitive dissonance in understanding what the relationship, the natural relationship of man and woman. Now, I've already done a couple of shows on, and you can... You can See them linked to on our wiki site and you can get on the Living Network and they'll, somebody will show you where they are. But uh, now we're going to talk about 
okay, you're a man and you're a woman, now you have a relationship of husband and wife. And the interesting thing in the earlier part of the show, we showed you that the same word translated husband is the same word translated man. And the same word translated woman is the same word translated wife. We just have two different words for that same idea because they're one and the same. If you want to be a good husband, you have to be a good man. You have to be a real man and not just a male. If you want to be a good wife, you can't be just a woman. You have to be this wife, this good woman. Because there are women that are not good women and they don't make good wives. And there are men that are not good men and they don't make good husbands. And it's all the other words and where those words are located in a sentence that tells you what the heck they're talking about. So in Corinthians uh, 7, we see, Now concerning the things whereof I wrote unto, uh, ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, nevertheless to avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. That's that's very clear directions. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. He's to be her benefactor. And likewise also the wife unto her husband. And wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over of his own body, but the wife. So she has power over him. She has a right to decide some things that he can do and not do in relationship to his body. She has that right to decide. It doesn't mean that he, she rules over him and says, oh, you got to do this for me and you got to do that for me and all that. But there are certain things he cannot do unless she gives him permission. Certain things. And we'll explore that. Let's back up a little bit. Let's get some more groundwork here so that we understand what we're talking about. In Hosea 1.11, going back to the Old Testament, it says, uh, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. What are they talking about? The day of Jezreel. Another one of those words that they don't translate. Great's confusion. And Jezreel means God sowed. Great is the day that God sows. Scatters seeds. Well, your seeds. So great is the day that He scatters seeds. Well, let's go back one from... Je- That's Hosea 1.11. Let's go back to one ten. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as sands of the seas which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my children, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. So something changed. Somewhere along the line, and we go back earlier in Hosea, we'll see this, but we just don't have time to go through the whole Hosea. And that's what we may start doing is taking one one, uh, chapter of one book at a time and going through it so that you start seeing these and not jump all around. But for the 
purposes of the topic of today. What, why, why were these people not his people? And now all of a sudden they're going to be his people. Because of what they said or because of what they're doing? Because their sacrifice is acceptable or because it was rejected? Now, your sacrifice is never going to be enough and that's why Christ came. But it doesn't mean that you don't have to sacrifice. Because he said himself, you have to give up your life that you have life more abundant and to give up your life is sacrifice. To care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself is going to take sacrifice. So there's still call for sacrifice, but your sacrifice is not enough. But Christ will be enough, but you have to repent and turn around and start being like Christ and following the ways of Christ or you're not saved. You're just deluded. And we have to be very guarded because he said a strong delusion will come. A lot of people will think that they're saved, but he's going to actually tell them, get you from me because of what they're doing. What they're doing is a work of iniquity. It is not strengthening the poor. It is not being fruitful. It is being the antithesis of what Christ said to do. And we have to guard that we are not doing that or we will be cast out. Go back to Hosea 1.9. Then said God, Call his name Laomi, for ye are not my people and I will not be your God. See, he had said, and, and you see this word, Laomi. And what is that? That's that's this word lo ami, ami, people. You are not my people. That's what he's saying. But there will come a day when he says, You are my people. So what do you have to do to become his people? You have to become husbands. You read in John four seventeen, a woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that said thou truly. So, who do you have? Now, remember that this word husband also makes reference to governments that become the husband of the people that are in that government. This husband has to do, if you go back in some of the words it has to do with husbandmen, has to do with plowing and tending the fields. So who is tending the field of the people? But the people has a crop. Well, that's not really a husband. It is simply devouring them. It is making them weaker. It is producing a vile crop. He is genetically modifying you as a people. So that you're going to become something other than made in the image of God. And he is doing this with his social welfare programs. That have become a snare. So anyway. Going back. Who is your husband? Are you, how can you be a husband and have God as your husband as a nation if you're not husbands to your wife? Because everything is like, you know, repeat of the same principle. If you look at a little atom, is like a little universe. And billions of atoms produce a solar system. And billions and billions and trillions of more atoms produce a, a galaxy. And then there's a sea of galaxies. And now we have the universe. But it's repeating some of the same principles over and over again. So, where can, can we do something about the whole world? No. 
You do something about the whole world by doing something in the relationships you can do something about at home. It starts at home. Your relationship between husband and wife. Your relationship between your you and your children. Are your sons your sons? Are you being a husband and father? Those almost the same thing to your sons and to your wife. So, like I said in 1 Corinthians 7, it says that uh, for a man, uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. By having that one and the same and not five different ones, you can start working out your salvation with fear and trembling because you have to deal with that relationship. You can't just jump to another one. And if you have jumped to another one, okay, that's not the one you're in now. The one you're in now, you have to do right by that. If you have children elsewhere, well, that creates even more of a problem. These are burdens that you are putting on. You have changed the first letter of the word of what you're doing. And now it becomes a burden. You change the precept because of your choices. And now what should have been a blessing has become a burden. How do you get it back to turning it into a blessing? By carrying the burden. Taking the responsibility. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And and likewise, the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other. Defraud thee not. Don't cheat. Except it be with consent for a time. Now, it doesn't mean you can cheat for a time. <laughs> but don't deprive. Except by consent. And, and we talk about this on, on uh, uh, these, like the vow of the Nazarite. People don't realize it, but a uh, man who took the vow of the Nazarite wasn't to go near his wife while he had taken the vow. Three days, three weeks, three months, whatever it was. He had to ask his wife for permission to take that vow. Because he wasn't going to go near her for that period of time. And when she granted it, then he could do that. She couldn't go back. And say, well, no, I changed it. And so, you know, it's... A, it's this kind of power over each other doesn't work without love and patience. Which is why God constructed it that way. It's a place for you to practice patience. And with some men, women get a lot of chances to practice patience and vice versa. And practice love and practice forgiveness. But this is the realm in which you do it. And if you cannot do it there, you cannot do it in the rest of the world. And they go on to tell you that over and over again in the Bible. Verse 6, But I speak this by permission and not of a commandment. He's not making commandments. He's trying to express concepts here. For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God one after this manner and another after that. And a lot of people say well, that Paul was unmarried, but then there's a lot of evidence that says he was. And so, let's not he's not even saying this is a commandment. He says, I say, therefore, to be unmarried and widows, 
is good for them if they abide even as I. And this is one of the reasons why some people think he was married and became a widow. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. Don't commit fornication. For it is better to marry than to burn. And there's a double meaning there too. And unto the married I command yet not I but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. You know, in in the Mosaic, uh, not Mosaic, but in the Koran, a man may fairly easily divorce his wife, but then he must take care of her as if she were his mother. He must provide for her needs as if she were his mother, but he can no longer sleep with her. He has to take care of her every need. This is a tremendous burden. But guys don't do it. <laughs> they, don't, they don't divorce. You know, of course, now they, they do just as bad as Christians do interpreting their Koran, so they find ways of getting around that. But I want you to understand these things, and we'll talk more about this in the next show. Keys to the Kingdom. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory and we're talking about the Kingdom of God and we're talking about husbands and wives, which is where the kingdom really begins. It actually begins inside your own heart and mind. But then once it does, then you become to operate according to the character of Christ. And that will change your relationship, hopefully for the better, obviously for the better, as husband and wife. And then as that relationship changes, your relationships with your children will change and your relationships with your friends will change and your relationship with your the nation and the people around about you, the Ami, as we've said before with the Hebrew word Ami, meaning people, will change. Because now you're operating in the name of Christ, according to the characters of His name. And this is one of the things that people don't understand why I spent some time in the last show 
talking about the meaning of letters in the Hebrew language. That the letters of the Hebrew language is telling you the meaning of the word. The, the word itself was created out of the meanings behind each letter of that word. That's unique in Hebrew. They have a, a similar thing in Chinese and Japanese language where they draw symbols and these symbols c- together produce different words. But they have like 400 symbols. And so you have a symbol that looks like a building and then you add another little line or two and the building becomes a barn. Add a different set of lines and it becomes a house. A different set of lines and it becomes a temple. But they start with that basic rudimentary picture that means a building. And then they take it from there. Well, in the Hebrew language, they do all this with letters, with an alphabet, alphabet. And that alphabet tells you what the meaning of each word is. Because once you know the meaning of the letters, you start knowing that. And we gave you the example of Ami, where you could change the first or last, depending on how you're looking at it. They're reading right to left. Uh, the last letter, uh, and you can turn the word for labor into the word for load or born or burden. And you can actually change it again and it becomes uh, deep or profound if it's used as a verb or a valley if it's used as a noun. Because uh, something that is deep, a valley, and the idea of something thinking is very in-depth or profound. You see how they connect though. We do that. You know, uh, he's deep. You know, that guy's really deep. You know, we use other words like, oh, he's cool. Or she's hot. You know, and of course people learning the language, this is always very confusing, but these are the idioms of the language. It doesn't mean that he is actually coming from the North Pole. It means he wears nice shades and Calvin Klein underwear or something. And so therefore he's cool. And we don't have any problem with that because we've learned the language. Well, if you don't know those things in the Hebrew language, you can get very confused. And that's what they have done is very much confuse you. That words have multiple meanings. Same exact word. can mean a valley or it can mean profound. Or as an adjective, it can mean strange, peculiar, unscrutable. You change the, the last letter to a resh. And now the word means merchandise or sheave or something. When they say sheave, they mean something you bind up. If you bind up the ami, the people, they are sheaves of grain bound together. Sheaves of, um, you know, stocks of grain all bound up in a bundle. And that's a diff- that now they're merchandise. And what did Peter say? And they shall make merchandise of you. How? Because of your covetousness. They will bind you up. And, and Paul says this. What should have been for your welfare has become a snare. It has become a way in which to bind you up as a people. So that now you're not just a people, but a person. And actually, if you take that, that word hesh, you know, that, that, that's what you, you'll find in that. You, you take, take, for instance, uh, the same ami, same word, and you put a deleth on the end. Now, uh, the word means a standing place. As a verb, it means to stand or endure or continue or withstand. 
But this word Ami itself is defined as nation or people. And a secondary definition is a person, a member, a compatriot. So Ami in itself is creating the idea that you are a nation bound together. Now, what binds you? That's going to tell you the meaning and the distinction of what you've been doing. You're not to be bound by your systems of welfare. You're not to be bound by covenants. And so, now, a husband and wife, are they bound by a contract? Well, if you get a legal marriage, you're bound by contract. And the state will enforce that contract. But if you're bound in holy matrimony, God will enforce that contract. And the enforcement is built into the system because God created the system. And the reason you enter into agreements with the Cains and Nimrods of the world is to get around the agreement that we have with God, the covenant we have with God. That if we don't do righteousness, we neither will we receive righteousness. If we aren't givers, neither will we receive gifts. Now, once we understand the precept of this, when we're out in the world and we are forming congregations of people where the people are the Congress, congregation, Congress, then how does God's kingdom work? Well, you give to those that are in true need. And they also must try to be self-supporting, not to drain the life out of their neighbor. If they cannot support themselves, they have to readjust their life to try to do that. If they cannot, but they are striving to do so, we must be forgiving and help them out. You cannot do that unless you gather together. You won't know what to do. You cannot do that efficiently unless you have a minister who will help service your community. That he takes out all of his day to go and check on all members of the congregation and to keep those people in uh, connection with all the other people who have congregated together to seek the kingdom of God. But they are bound not by contract, but by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. But that law of liberty requires that we take care of one another. That we are as concerned about our neighbor's rights as our own. And again, that starts in the family. We have to be concerned about our wife's rights. And our wives have to be concerned about our rights. And we both have to be concerned about our children growing up to be strong and independent individuals. You don't do that by putting your children on the front lines. You do that by training them at home in the ways. Protecting them. Uh, I saw a thing. Well, I won't go into that. Let's look at Proverbs 12.4. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that maketh ashamed is a rottenness in his bones. Proverbs 31.10 Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. So if you find a woman that is willing to be a wife, you've got a responsibility. Proverbs 31.11 Next verse. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that she shall have no need of spoil. What do they mean by that? 
she wouldn't have any need to go on welfare for her husband is trustworthy. He is her safety. He is her strength. He is her provider. He is her benefactor. He is her husband. He's a husbandman. To be a husbandman of your flock, your flock does not do without. It does not have to go and eat in the other man's field because you find green pastures for your flock to eat in. Because you're a husband. Thirty-one twenty-three. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. He has taken the time to connect with other elders and they all take care of their families. And they all contribute so that they make sure that their neighbor is taken care of as well within that congregation. And they set aside preserves for themselves and they also set aside provisions for the rest of the community of believers, community of believers, neighbors in the society of believers. Believe in what? Believe in faith, hope, and charity. Believe in not going to the benefactors who exercise authority, but providing for one another. What made this country great was that men got up and women got up and they did the work of being a family. They cared for one another. They strengthened one another. They provided for one another. And they cared about their neighbor as much as they cared about themselves. That is what made America a great nation. And we don't do that anymore. So if you want to follow the ways of Christ, you have to start doing that. And that's why we have the Living Network. So that you can find other people like yourself. We've had some people come on and they're still very isolated. Because there's not a million people on the network. And so that you'll find people over in this town or over in that town. And they say, well, there's nobody here. Well, you don't know there's nobody there. Are we on the local radio station? Are, are we canvassing? The, you know, we don't want you going door to door. But you need to connect with others so that we can find others who will hear this message. Because there's a cognitive dissonance out there. There's a lot of dead out there that will be there to bury the dead and devour the dead and eat the dead, the zombies. But you're supposed to be these other people and you need to find those other people. I mean, always you see the attack of the zombies kind of movies. They're always looking for the guys who aren't zombies. <laughs> I want to get together with the guys who aren't also zombies because that's what you need to do and you have to do this without getting eaten by zombies. Well, one way to do that is radio broadcasts like this. You can go out to a lot of different people and record it so that other people can come to the website. We get what? We get about 500 people a day coming to just one of our websites. Or, no, 500 pages a day. I guess about 200 people. So they often go to more than one page, which is good. Good sign that they didn't just, you know, come by looking for porn. Didn't see it went on. They actually came by and were looking for answers and went to more than one page. So that's over half a million people. Just on those, And we have all kinds of sites. And, and we're about to gear up and hopefully and improve our preparing you site, which has you know hundreds of hundreds of megabytes of data in it. And we're gonna we're talking about setting it up in a different system so that now how do we do that? Do we have somebody else who sets everything up and does everything, and then you just come and benefit? No, you are the benefactors. You are the government. You want to be the government, not them. You have to start governing yourself like you're the government. 
You have to start becoming the benefactors who don't exercise authority one over the other. And there's no place other to start that than in your home. Jeremiah 3.20 Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, said the Lord. Again, equating himself to a husband. And that you are the ones who have departed from his ways. And you certainly have. Now how do we get back? We have to start going back to his ways. And where do we start that? In the family. Jeremiah 31:32. Not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, said the Lord. Now, there, there's another word that's translated husband, be it in Lamad. That's Baal. Baal. That means Lord. I was Lord to them, but Lord in the ways of God, not Lord in the ways of Satan. Different ways, same Lord. Both words describe both. Beelzebub, you know. That's the same word. That's the prefix to Beelzebub. Let's go back down to Corinthians 7 again. Look at the New Testament. And unto married I command ye, not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Well, her husband is what? The one who cares for her, provides for her, provides for her child. Sees to it that they are sustained while they go out on the front line. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. There you go. Why? You know, you have to work out those things individually. And God is your answer, His ways are your answer. But to the rest speak I not the Lord. Now this is Paul speaking, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. Now, a lot of people don't understand what that is. Believeth not. You know, we, we interpret these things. Believeth not. You have to, you, most people don't understand that the church was separate from the people. The church was the called out to be the government of the people, for the people, and by the people, but to become the benefactors of the people that do not exercise authority so that the people did not have to go to the men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other. Christ was setting up a government that operated according to the perfect law of liberty so that you could stand fast in the liberty in which he had made you free. And this is why they said there is another king on Jesus who gives us the liberty to pay the taxes we choose to pay, and we pay to them, and they take care of our needs. And we will not go to your temples and pray at your altars for your benefits, because your benefits are the Corbin that make the word of God to none effect. They are produced by the Corbin which make the God of none effect. And it's all right there in the text. If you would only read the text in the context of the text. And understand history. 
And that's why we wrote the book, Thy Kingdom Come. So you would understand that from the beginning, this is what God was doing, was setting up a system of social welfare that operated by the perfect law of liberty and faith, hope, and charity. And you cannot do that unless you come together in congregations of record in the sense that we agree that we're a part of this congregation. And and you can always change in a minute because it's not a contract. It's coming into an agreement between you and another person under the authority of God. And if you don't want to be a part of that congregation, then you start another one. You you become a part of a different one. And that in, now you become self-governing. And, and you're not dealing in debt. So you're not bound to any one congregation. You can leave any time you want. And all your gifts are freely given. And other people will say, yeah, come into our congregation because we know you're a giving, righteous individual. And if you're not a giving, righteous individual, you're a selfish clot. Then they'll say, well, I don't know, we want you. And what will happen is all those who are giving, forgiving, gracious people operating according to the characters of Christ, those letters of Christ. See, all those letters, we call them characters. And those letters compose the word that we call the name. And if you have uh, forgiveness, but you don't give, you don't have all the characters of Christ's name. If you have the character of giving, but not the discretion that comes with not feeding Sheep, or, or, or you know, not casting pearls to swine. Then you don't have all the character of Christ's name, and you're not doing it in His name. You're doing it in something less than His name. You have to have all the characteristics of Christ in order to do things in the name of Christ. You can't just say a magic word and then you say, "Well, I did this in the name of Jesus. I did this in the name of Yeshua." You know, I have an article I need to write really bad about Jeroboam. In 1 Kings 12.32 it says, And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the eighth day of the month like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel sacrifice unto the calves and he had uh, made... And he placed in Bethel a priest of the high places which he had made. And people said, so we have to not change the day. Because if we change the day of that feast, then we were like Jeroboam who was cursed. Jeroboam was not cursed because he changed the day. He was cursed because he changed the way. The way in which he had his feasts and his sacrifices and his system of self-government. He was like Rehoboam before him. The day is incidental. You cannot just keep a particular day and make it work. That's the same thing as with husband and wife. You cannot pretend to care. You have to actually care. A lot of times uh, women want you to act in a certain way so that they will know you care. Well... You have to decide whether or not you can act in that way or not. 
But they're going to have to decide whether you care, not based upon the dictates that they say you have to perform by, but by the allowing you the freedom to follow the dictates that Christ is putting in your heart. But by the same token, is Christ putting that in your heart? Or who you used to be is putting that in your heart? Is the old man putting that in his own heart? Or is he following the ways of Christ? And these are the things that we have to work out. You can't, I can't say that exactly. I can say what it probably looks like and that's what we see Paul saying. He's not giving you commandments. He's saying this is what it's probably going to look like. Husbands will take care of their wives and their children. And they won't send their children to eat at the altars of idolaters. They will put the food on the table the best they can. Now, that may not happen overnight because we have gone so far away from the ways of God. It's going to take some getting back to them. We don't want people starving in the meantime. But we want them striving to create that alternative. And this is a big problem. that People are always wanting to get out of the system because they see it's weak and, and, and wicked. But they don't want to get into the kingdom. Israel had to pay its tally of bricks while it was learning the ways of the kingdom. Before God would even release them from their bondage. So that they were ready to go. And even then they were having a real hard time of it. For about 40 years it took them to learn the lessons of the kingdom. It's just going to be the same way now. So you may not get 40 years. You may have to learn a lot quicker. And a lot of Israelites didn't learn very quick. And a lot of Israelites died. In verse 13 of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, And a woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So, he was allowing for something to go on. And again, that church is this ecclesia. That's the believers. The ones that operate by faith alone. They give up their own personal estate. This is what Christ is saying. You must give up everything to be one of my disciples. Not to be one of my congregations, but to be one of my ministers. And you must own all things in common so that the people can own their own possessions and own their own family. Today, the people do not own their own possessions. They do not own their own family. They are merchandise. In order to get them so they're not merchandise, you have to construct a government that operates according to the ways of Christ. You have to find men who will be husbandmen to their congregations. And I can tell you from personal experience, this is going to cost your wife some grief. Because she's going to have to give you up from time to time. Because people call you early in the morning. They call you late at night. They call you, they put all kinds of demands on you because they cannot walk alone. They're falling over all the time. And your job is to help lift them up. Not to lift them up and carry them, but lift them up so they learn to walk on their own two feet. And that is a strain on a family. And that's why there are such restrictions, and we'll get to that in subsequent shows. There's such restrictions on what it is to be a minister. Because it is a burden. And again, we go back to that original, these words of people, Ami, put one letter on, it's a burden. 
another letter, it's work. Because there's a job in being a husband and being a man. Because now again, remember, in the Hebrew, the same word for husband is the word for man. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. It doesn't mean that the the one the husband is Christian and the wife is, you know, a completely different religion. I can't think of one right offhand that's completely different because they're all so similar. <laughs> I mean, they have different rituals. That you know, she can't be an atheist and he be a, you know, a follower of Christ, and that she's running around whoring after other men and doing all this other stuff. But she may not be in the ministry. That's what the believer was, the ministry. And the other people who believed in that ministry and supported it, they were the elders. That was one of the things that people need to understand. The elders are the head of families. They are the husbands of families. And an elder actually could be a woman if she was a widow. She didn't lose her representation within the congregation. But you got to remember that the congregation didn't exercise any authority over the minister. They contributed. That's where their power was. They chose what they were going to contribute. But they, you know, they talk about a woman not exercising authority and we'll get to that eventually. But uh, the men were not supposed to exercise authority one over the other. Christ is very clear about that. They had a hierarchy, but it wasn't a rulership. It says he used to be greatest amongst you. That's a hierarchy. Is to be as a servant, not as a ruler. Now we're coming back to the original thing we talked about in the previous show about husbands and wives longing for a husband, but instead getting rulers who exercise authority one over the other. They're not walking together if they're doing that. You want a wife who is your ally your compatriot bound to you in love, supporting your work in love. You don't want one that is, you know, cowardly and submissive. You want a courageous woman standing by you, offering her unique skills. Women are highly intuitive, often very capable of multitasking. These are skills that sometimes is unique to a woman. And you want that ally. She's not your. She's to be your assistant, not to be your slave. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? O how knowest thou, O man, where, if, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one. So let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches. And any man called being circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision, let him be circumcised. There was not a uniformity of liturgy, but a uniformity of precepts. We were to seek the kingdom of God in his righteousness. Not his rituals 
and forms. And this is what we need to understand and this is what we need to work for. Is the, What we're doing often in these churches is supplanting the precepts of God with the rituals of men, the vocabulary of men, the philosophies of men. God's ways are simple. Love thy neighbor as thyself and to love God with all thy heart and thy mind. We'll talk more about what that looks like when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking again about this idea of husband, husband and wife. They're complementary. As I said in the first show, that they are like uh, different muscles, opposing muscles, strengthening each other in the isometrics of life. And it is very important that we allow them to grow unrestricted. And when Paul was talking about if any man is called being circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Well, of course, this was part of being a part of a system of government that was already in existence. This circumcision was, you know, the temple at Jerusalem was a government building. And it provided benefits. And he wasn't saying change everything, but... Okay, if you're circumcised, you're circumcised. If your uh, circumcision is nothing, he says, uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God. Now, this is the guy who says the law is done away with. But he says, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he uh, was called. In other words, he goes on in the next verse in 21. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. So if you're in the system of men and you become a human resource and merchandise and and you're a part of this system that is the Corbin of the Pharisees that makes the Word of God to none effect, and a lot of you noon listeners may not understand all that. You can read about it on our website and there's audios there. But the fact is, is that that's where you are when you begin to hear the calling of God. Don't try to change that. Right away, try to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You cannot separate. Well, I'll get into the kingdom and later on I'll learn righteousness. No, you got to learn righteousness or you can't come in the door. And this is the process that God gives you in the world where you are born. The unrighteous mammon will fail. It will fail. Are you working to have a more righteous habitation when it does? If you're just stocking up food and and uh, stocking up money and saving up stuff that's that you can be saving yourself, you've missed it. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. You just love yourself. You have to start coming together and thinking about others on a day-to-day basis in order to keep the commandments. You can't. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments, Christ says. Over and over again we hear that. 
For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. People want to be free and separate from the system, but they don't want to take the time to learn to be righteous. And where does the righteousness begin? It begins in the home. Husbands, be husbands. Wives, be wives. Be servants to one another. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. He wants you to be free. But you you have to learn how to do that. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Learn to abide with God, then work from there. Now concerning virgins, he says, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to the faithful. Now, you have to understand he is talking, when he says virgin, the Parthenos, that means the virgin. This was the other system. If you're not a part of that other system, you would be considered a virgin. But if you're not a part of that other system and you're not building the system of God, the kingdom of God, then you are a foolish virgin. He's using these words as an analogy, talking about the government of God set up by Christ, operated by the apostles, where they rightly divided the bread from house to house. And they took care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society, not because there was not a welfare system around, but because there was not a welfare system around that operated by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. It is the same with you today. But you cannot set up the system of God unless you are husbands to your wives and wives are wives to your husbands. So this is why he says now concerning virgins. He's not just talking about sexual virgins. They they understood that pretty good. He's putting this because he's talking about elders in a government. Who are the elders in the congregation? The head of every family. It was an elder by circumstances. Why did he appoint elders? He did not appoint them to be elders. They were elders by circumstance. He appointed men by who were elders by circumstance to offices of the church to be the government of the people for the people and by the people. To provide the people with benefactors who did not exercise authority so they did not have to go to the benefactors who did in order to obtain the daily administration when there was true need simple. But you can't do that without husbands and wives being husbands and wives. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art they thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife, but and if you're Thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short and remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. He is telling you about both the obvious relationship of man and woman that is corollary to the relationship of husband as the government is the husband of the people. God is to be your husband. God is to be your father. 
if you're in the system, he's just saying the same thing Jesus said about the unrighteous mammon. Be friends with the unrighteous mammon. You are married. Your husband is the state. It will take care of you. It will provide for you. It will put food on your table. It will pay your rent. You can get your food stamps. That's your husband. But you have to eat. But now you have to seek to be free. He's talking about freedom. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about being a servant. He's using the same... If you, once you understand the symbolic nature of the Hebrew language, this is, makes perfect sense to hear him speaking in this way. Because he's using words like virgin to symbolize, which is a precept. There is a virginity. There is married. There is husband, natural husband. But there's also the state as your husband. But if you can't get the domestic relationship in your household right, how can you get the relationship right in the world. And then we go on to talk about that. And we probably won't get to it in this show. But we'll get to it in the next. We may do a lot of shows on this subject. Because this is really the basics of the kingdom. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. What's he saying? Use this world. Shall we look at the Greek and Hebrew of that? Let's look at the Greek and Hebrew of that. I can go over here and pull that up for you right away. I don't know what it says there in the Hebrew, I mean in the Greek, but I can guess. What world do you think that is? Are the five different And they that use this world. Why is he talking about that? I thought we were talking about virgins and marriage. He's talking about using the world. What world is that? You want me to read you the definition of that word right out of Greek concordance? An apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution, order, government. That's what that word means. And this is the Corinthians. Did you know Paul went to the treasurer of Corinth and said, Hey, you guys should run your government like we run ours. On faith, hope, and charity. He tried to get the treasurer, and there's evidence that to some degree the treasurer was doing this. But he was a servant of the people too, and, and there's a lot of money in the treasury, and it probably didn't last long, but a lot of people started seeing this. That this is the way you need to run a government in order to strengthen the people. And that's what they started doing. They started strengthening one another, strengthening the people. So when he's talking about virgins, why is he all of a sudden talking about the government? Because he's been talking about the government from the beginning. But the government of God is rooted within the family. And the powers of the family are rooted within the hearts and minds of the people. So yes, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And now your family has to become this microcosm of the kingdom of God. And as it becomes that microcosm of the kingdom of God, it prepares itself for the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So that you don't have to be users of the world that turns you into merchandise. You know, in verse 30 he said, and they 
that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that busy as though they possess not. What is he talking about? And then he goes on, and they that use this world and not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. Yeah, you have to. You may have to be on food stamps. You may have to be in the system in order to be husbands and to be wives. But don't abuse that. Every waking moment, striving moment, seek the kingdom of God. And we are a long ways from it, so it's going to take a lot of overtime. I know I put in my overtime. Do you put in yours? But I would have you without carefulness. Without carefulness? What's he talking about? He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for things that are of the world. Why is he saying married of the world? Because your government is your husband. That's what he's talking about. If you read, you know, once you understand the definition, it is such a powerful thing. Such a powerful thing. To change our perception by changing the the translation of the words. You know, if I said, but he that is married, married what? Giving and taking in marriage. Marriage was a contract. He who has a contract with the world. How he may please his wife. What wife? The world. He's got a covenant with the world. He has to please it. He's using this husband and wife relationship as an analogy to explain the government of God to the Corinthians. And that's why he's using the word that means constitutional order or system of government. And talking about being bound servants and caring not for it. I mean, how many times do they talk in the Old Testament where they use the word husband, they use the word wife, and they're talking about government? They do it all the time. Adultery, most of the time when they talk about adultery, they're talking about national adultery. When they were making covenants with these strange gods. But we miss that symbolism of that language because we don't understand that that language is all symbols. And that's why they can take a single word and translate it 5, 10, 15 different ways because it actually had 15 different meanings. Some of them quite different depending on, you know, I mean, how is a valley something that is profound? An idea that is a valley? We don't say, boy, that's a really valley idea. Actually, if we said that, you know, we said there's a valley girl, we're probably saying she's shallow. <laughs> but uh, that's the, the quirks of the language. And when you're reading it and you don't understand that, you're not really reading it. You're under a strong delusion. And you need to wake up to these strong delusions in order to understand what's really going on. And, and he goes on and he explains some of these things in, uh, 
uh, you know, like 33, he goes on, but he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, constitutional order or system of government, how he may please his wife. Is an analogy of the one he's married to, the government. There is a difference also between the wife and a virgin, one that is not a part of the world. My kingdom is not of the world. That's the word he's using, not of the world. It's in the world, but not of the world. The unmarried woman careth for things of the Lord, and she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for things of the world, and she may please her husband. The world. And he doesn't want, he wants you to be virgins. Not of the world. Not married to the world. Not a servant in the world. Once you understood that Christ was actually setting people free from systems of Corbin that were binding people up, which should have been for their welfare, had become a snare, then all this stuff, he's... But yet it still does apply to the relationship of husband and wife and virgins. Because it's a precept upon precept. You'll find the same precept in this. And you say, well, obviously, you know, don't cheat on your wife. He's also, he's telling you to be friends with the unrighteous mammon. Don't cheat on it. And so this is, this is the way that we have to move in this direction to become that government of God. And this, I speak for you, for your own profit. Not that I may cast a snare upon you. Where else did he say a snare? We should have been for your welfare has become a snare. So he's saying, I don't want to cast a snare. But for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction, so that you may become the kingdom of God, without being pulled over into having to serve the world. So that you don't have to have two masters, that you only have one. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. Now, now he's going back over and talking, and, and you'll see him switching back and forth. Wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. So he is giving you this analogy, but he takes it over into the world. If you don't understand that there are five different Greek words translated in the world, this all gets to be confusing. He is, he is telling them about the natural relationship of man and woman in marriage. And then equates it, which is done all the time in the Old Testament, to the unnatural relationship of man and government, the world. And that if you don't get the home life right, you cannot get your relationship with the world right. And so you need to be husbands at home to become the husbands of God. Because see, the church is the husband in a way to the people, just as the church is also the bride of Christ. Because the husband and, and and wife are one. 
And that's the way the church is operating. We learn to be servants so that you may be free, but you cannot be free unless you become servants to one another. In the world, you are servants to one another by contract with one another, by agreement with unbelievers. In the kingdom of God, you are servants to one another by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. So anyway, the next place to go to, in quotes, we could go on to that. Uh, because immediately, you know, they, they separate the chapters. You get down to verse 40, it says, But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment. And I think also that I have the Spirit of God. But then the very next chapter, he begins with, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. We have knowledge, but charity edifieth. Touching things offered to idols... Their system, offering things to idols, was this system of Corbin where you had to pay in and they took care of the social welfare needs of the people. And if you needed social welfare, you had to go and pray at their altars and they would give you things offered to their, on their altars. And that was things offered to idols. That your social welfare is what was offered to idols in a system of Corbin that made the word of God to none effect. And and they're telling you you're not supposed to be touching those things. We have knowledge. Our relationship with that puffeth up. But charity edifieth. We're to be creating a system that has offerings of charity. And that we go to those charitable altars that bring us to humility and not puffeth up. That's the way you, you find amongst all the socialists. You owe me a living. They think you owe me a living. They're puffed up. Because they have been eating things offered to idols for years. They have been devouring the Corban of the Pharisees. That makes the word of God to none effect. They are not living humbly in a world, in a system, operating by faith, hope, and charity. And you, you are not a Christian if you're going that other way. You're only a Christian if you're going the ways of charity. You see, this is the cognitive dissonance. You think you're a Christian even though you covet your neighbor's goods to the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. You think you're a Christian because you send your wife there and you do not provide for her and your children. You have to do that. that, that and you probably won't be able to do that. But better that you do that in the world, being a servant in the world, building the kingdom, than imagining that you're a virgin, but foolish squandering the precious gift that God has given you, which is your family. I've seen this time and time and time again. In Ephesians, 5.21, we see submitting yourself one to another in the fear of God. That's what we should be doing. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband, not to your own ruler, but to your own husband, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. How did Christ rule? With an iron rod? No, with love. 
and self-sacrifice. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Not to struggle. Not to striving in our own hearts. But it prepares us for the kingdom. Because the, the family is a microcosm of the kingdom. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to his own husband, to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. He might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And each part of the church is the families who compose it. Each family must become that self-sustaining kingdom. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For, for no man ever hateth the flesh, not nourish, cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. And, and this is a subject we will go on and on with. Because it is very important that we understand this. Till then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.